welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning, everyone. Welcome along to Gateway this morning. Thank you so much for taking time out of your long weekend and coming. Um, we, we don't take that for granted. We recognize that time is one of those irreplaceable irrepl- resources and people can choose to spend it wherever they feel uh, it's um, most valuable and we're incredibly grateful that uh, you feel it's valuable to spend it here with us as a community as we worship um, together and as we look into the Word. Um, I've been doing a series, this is uh, part three, of uh, a study of uh, generosity. Uh, I'm currently looking at the subject. Um, um, I've, got, I've got a number of messages planned, and um, not all of them are on money, because once you start talking about generosity, people immediately think, oh, the church is trying to raise money. And I've said in each of the messages I've done thus far that God is not in the business of trying to raise money. He is in the business of trying to raise kids. And he wants those kids, he wants those children to look just like him. So we're going to be looking at generosity in its various mediums. You know, money is not the only medium of generosity. Uh, Time is a precious medium that we can be generous with. Words are a precious medium with which we can be very very generous, or we can be stingy on the other hand. So over the series, I plan to look at um, some of those different um, mediums. In message one, I did a message I simply called uh, Open Hearts, Open Hands. And we talked about the fact that when a grace-filled, generous God touches our hearts, it has to impact our hands. And then last week I looked at the message that I called the paradox of generosity in which Jesus gave us the key to human flourishing. And he simply said in Acts chapter 20 verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The word blessed means, you know, the basic meaning is life flourishing. If you want your life to flourish, then learn to be generous. And I talked about the fact that our culture thinks that's rubbish. Our culture is absolutely committed to acquisitiveness, to acquiring things, more and more things. And we believe deep in our bones that the more things we have, the happier we'll be. Jesus gives us such counterintuitive wisdom when he says it's not that way. It's the, it's the generous that find themselves flourishing and, and happy. And we talked a bit about that. The message that I want to bring to you this morning came to me as a little bit of a surprise. Now, what I mean by that is when I embark on a series, I usually have it somewhat loosely planned. I generally know the subjects I want to cover and and, and the approximate order that I want to cover them. And uh, and I didn't plan this message into the schedule. What happened was I went to look at one scripture just to reference it as part of another message that I was planning on bringing to you. And as I looked at this particular scripture and looked at its wider context, it was as if this message emerged and demanded to be heard in a manner that I hadn't expected. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be dramatic, and in the end you might decide it would be better if it hadn't emerged. Um, I, and I'm not claiming this is one of those God spoke to me moments, you know. It just, 
it struck me as I was reading it, and I'll, I'll let you decide and make a decision in terms of whether it would have been better to have not emerged or not. But the text that I looked at was Isaiah chapter 32, verses one through eight. And I wanna read it to you and then just unpack it with you this morning. It goes like this. But look, a king will rule in the right way and his leaders will carry out justice. Each one will stand as a shelter from high winds, provide safe cover in stormy weather. Each will be, a cool run, will be cool running water in a parched land, a huge granite outcrop giving shade in the desert. Anyone who looks will see, anyone who listens will hear, the impulsive will make sound decisions, the tongue-tied will speak with eloquence. No more will fools become celebrities, nor crooks be rewarded with fame, for fools are fools, and that's that. Thinking up new ways to do mischief, they leave the wake of wretched lies, wrecked lives and lies about God, turning their backs on the homeless, hungry, ignoring those dying of thirst in the streets. And the crooks, underhanded sneaks. They are inventive in sin and scandal, exploiting the poor with scams and lies, unmoved by the victimized poor. But those who are noble make noble plans and stand for what is noble. And it was that last verse, those that are noble make noble plans and stand for what is noble, which drew me to this passage in the first place, and you'll see why as I unpack the message. But when I went to look at this passage in Isaiah 32 verse 8 and read the wider context, it just, it, it grabbed me. And I want to just share with you how it grabbed me, okay? First of all, I noticed it started off, but look, a king will rule in righteousness, and the word but struck me. Um, I don't know whether you remember your English well or you're trying desperately to forget it, but but is what we call a disjunctive conjunction, which means but is used when we want to separate ideas and contrast them. Up until this point, Isaiah has, in his prophecies, bringing us, has been bringing a scathing rebuke and a message of judgment because of the wickedness of Judah and Jerusalem, and particularly to its leaders, its kings and its princes. So in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23, he says, your leaders are rebels, companions of thieves. All of them take bribes and won't defend the widows and the orphans. Up to this point, Isaiah has been going after the king and his underlings. And they were characterized by drunkenness, by lies, by trickery. There was rebellion instead of righteousness. There was oppression instead of justice. So Isaiah speaks to that, and then comes this word, but, disjunctive conjunction, separating ideas and contrasting them. And Isaiah now begins to prophesy about a time when there will be a new king and a new society, a new king and a new community. You know, one of the purposes of biblical prophecy is to provide ultimate vision in order to brighten immediate darkness. It gives us hope when we might be tempted to give up being overwhelmed by present dark circumstances. So into the present dark circumstances, Isaiah begins to prophesy this, this note of hope. And the picture that Isaiah paints of this new king and his community is an incredible one. It's an ideal whose fullness will only be manifested in a future age. This king will be so different 
to what Isaiah's listeners are presently experiencing that he uses this disjunctive conjunction. But in contrast and separation to what you are seeing, this will be the way it will be with this new king and in this new community. His rule will embody righteousness and justice. Now, we know enough from Isaiah's other prophecies that he isn't talking about an earthly king. This is the messianic king that Isaiah has been dropping hints about throughout his prophecies up to this point. You remember that famous passage in Isaiah chapter nine where he says, unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and these will be his royal titles. So he's a king. Royal titles, wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. His ever expanding peaceful government will never end and he will rule with perfect fairness. This is what Isaiah is saying in chapter 32. He will rule with justice and justice from the throne of his father David. He will bring true justice and peace to all the nations of the world. So Isaiah has previously spoken about this new king who will come. In Isaiah chapter 11, he references him again. He says, from the royal line of David, a king will come, basically is what he's saying. Although, it, although the royal line will be cut off, chopped down like a tree, but from the stump will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch from the old root, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So when Isaiah starts in chapter 32 to speak about this new king, it's not a completely new, fresh idea. He has dropped ideas. And Isaiah states that this new king will come, he will embody righteousness and justice, and he will come with honest princes and rulers. This new community, his underlings, if you like, will look just like him. They are and will act as his executives, and they also will embody and employ righteousness and justice. And he and they, this king and this community, will bless and protect the people under their care rather than exploiting them as the present leaders were doing. The present leaders, if you read Isaiah's prophecy, were functioning as predators from whom the people were fleeing and seeking protection. They needed deliverance from the very people that had been appointed to actually guard them from, exploit from exploitation. But these new leaders, this new community would in fact be a source of protection and support. And so verse two in the NIV translates each one, each one of these leaders under this new king will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and a shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. So four vivid similes of how these people will function as shelter, as refuge, as refreshing, as shade to people that desperately need these things. Then it says the impact of this good and godly leadership will be spiritual transformation among the people because verse three and four goes on to say, then the eyes of those who see will, those who see will no longer be closed, the ears of those who hear will listen, the fearful in heart will know and understand and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. Good leadership affects transformation in the people that they lead, and it affects every part of their lives, their eyes, their perception, their ears, their reception, their hearts, there's illumination, their tongue, there's communication. Spiritual clarity and perception comes to these people because of this new king and the people of this new community. 
By the way, as an aside, you know, that comment, spiritual clarity and perception, always follows people who submit themselves to God's ways. You know, oftentimes I hear people say, well, if I can understand it, then I'll obey it. Now, I'm not promoting some kind of mindless, cultic, robotic obedience, but the reality is sometimes understanding follows obedience and not vice versa. So we say, you, you show me and I'll obey. And he says, you obey and I'll show you. A clarity comes to these people under the uh, jurisdiction of these godly people as they, as they obey. Isaiah 32, verse five and six, then starts to contrast the present circumstances that Isaiah is experience, experiencing with what will come in the future. And he says this, in those days, the ungodly, the atheists will not be heroes, and you could put in bracket, as they are presently. And then he says, the wealthy cheaters will not be spoken of as generous, outstanding men, brackets, as they presently are. Everyone will recognize an evil man when he sees him, and hypocrites will fool no one at all, as they do presently. So he's doing this kind of contrast, you know, this, this but thing. It's like this at the moment, but on that day it won't be. And he says their lies about God and, all their, and their cheating of the hungry will be plain for all to see. He's saying we live presently in a deeply flawed society. And as a result, it is completely flawed in the way that it accords honor to people. The ungodly and the atheists are heroes, is the way the Living Bible puts it. And the New King James says, and the misers are called generous. The wealthy cheaters are called generous, outstanding men, is the way the Living Bible has it. This is the order of Isaiah's time. A people completely incapable of discernment. They don't know the difference between the crooks and the good guys. Their values are upside down and they don't know the difference between good and evil. And Isaiah has said that on another occasion. In Isaiah chapter five, verse 20, it says, they say what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right, that black is white and white is black and bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. You haven't got a clue morally and spiritually, he's saying. You know, in the original Hebrew, this is made even more vivid by the similarity of sounds between the word fool, which is nabal, and the word noble, which is nodib. In the Hebrew, they sound quite similar. And, and Isaiah is saying, they confuse these things. They don't know the difference between foolishness and nobility. In the description that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah 32, and you can read it later, um, there are two characteristics that he focuses on in this flawed society. He says, it is filled with fools and scoundrels. The word fool occurs in verse five, the word scoundrels in verse six. When, when the Bible talks about fools, it doesn't use it the way we presently colloquially do. Uh, the fool isn't a court jester type person, an, you know, an, an idiot, we might say. It, there isn't a reference in that word to their intellectual capacity, which in fact might be quite great. Rather, when the Bible uses the word fool, it is speaking to a people who live without an acknowledgement of either moral or spiritual obligations. That's why Proverbs, sorry, Psalm 14, verse one says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. We aren't talking about intellectual capacity, we're talking about a spiritual and moral stance where they reject God. 
And a fool is characterized by his opposition toward God and his carelessness toward people. It says that in verse six. The other word is the word scoundrel. And it comes from a Hebrew root that means to keep back, hence the idea of being stingy or greedy. It describes one who strains for self-advantage at the hurt of other people. It's, it's one who plans and schemes to accumulate material wealth and who cynically manipulates other people in his own or in her own interests. It's not accidental. Verse six says they practice this. Verse seven says they scheme and devise this. This streak of miserliness, which is the exact opposite of the generosity that I want to try and present in this series, um, it, it seems that this stinginess, this greediness marks the society because not only are the scoundrels greedy but the ones who are fools are also. You, you might remember, and as I was reading this, I was reminded of a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 25 where David encounters a man by the name of Nabal and you might recognize that Hebrew word, Nabal, the fool. He was a fool by name and a fool by nature. And the story goes that David and his men had been very generous and very gracious to Nabal, his property and his possessions and his workers. And David requests some acknowledgement from Nabal at shearing time of that generosity. And Nabal's response was a cynical dismissal of David's request. He says in verse 11, should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a gang who comes from God knows where, is the way the message translates it. I'm not sharing my stuff with you. I don't care if you've been generous to me. That's your foolishness. This is my stuff. This is Nabal, the fool. And a key manifestation of foolishness is miserliness. This man and fools like him manifest a radically pervasive, ungenerous spirit. As I was reading this passage in Isaiah 32, I couldn't help but compare Isaiah's time to ours. You know, though everything is different, perhaps nothing has changed. And although everything has changed, it seems regarding human nature, nothing is different. And I wonder that it, our culture, I, I think it bears all of the same marks of um, scoundrelness, if I can use such a word, and foolishness as Isaiah's time, biblically defined foolishness and scoundrelness, if there's such a word. In Isaiah's time and people, and in our culture, we hold those kinds of people, the atheists, the fools, the unbelievers, and the scoundrels up as heroes in the same way that Isaiah's time did. The Living Bible, remember, said the ungodly and the atheists are heroes. You think of the adulation and airtime that people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, and Christopher Hitchens, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, they call them, the, the new atheists. You think of the airtime and the heroic status that these people have been accorded. And it goes on in Isaiah, the wealthy cheaters are spoken of as generous, outstanding people. 
We live in an age in which wealthy celebrities are held up as role models. We don't particularly care how they've acquired their wealth by fair means or foul. Simply that they have it and that they have this, um, this notoriety is enough for us to hail them as outstanding. Celebrities, by the way, are people who are known for their well-knownness. Most of them, their chief, their chief claim to fame is fame itself. They're famous for being famous. And big personalities have in our time replaced large characters. We, it seems, if you look at the magazines that are on display in the racks, have given hero status for those who have done well for themselves, for the wealthy, for the, for the attractive, for, for those who are out there with their, with their foolish ideas. Psalm 49 verse 18 says, for men will praise you when you do well for yourself, and we have done that. In the same way that Isaiah's people and culture lifted up these people as heroes, we have done the same. We don't care if they're foolish and scoundrelish as the Bible defines it. We are impressed by the fact that they have made it. They are wealthy and famous, and that's our point of envy. You know, in a recent survey done among teenagers, they were asked most uh, they were asked what they most wanted to be when they left school and went into uh, employment. And, you know, it's not a fireman or an astronaut. It's not a, da- it's not a doctor or a scientist now. The, the answer that came back most often was simply, I want to be famous. And, of course, by implication, wealthy. Our culture, it seems to me, bears exactly the same marks that Isaiah's did. We are foolish in that by and large we have rejected God and his objective moral standards. And we are scoundrelish in that we are radically, pervasively ungenerous. We are are miserable. You say, well, Don, that seems to me to be a little over the top. Well, I shared with you last week, statistically, nearly half of the Western world gives away to charity of any kind absolutely nothing. Nothing to nobody. And 86% of our Western uh, culture gives less than 2% of its income to any cause. If that doesn't qualify for being radically ungenerous, I'm not quite sure what you would imagine would. And then we have another disjunctive conjunctive conjunction. But, it says in verse 8, the generous man will devise generous things, and by generosity he will stand. That's how it reads. Okay, you said, but Don, when you read it before, you said, the noble man devises noble things, and by nobility he will stand. Well, that word noble and generous in the Hebrew mean the same thing. So we start with another separation of ideas with contrast. This society is marked by foolishness and by people who are scoundrels, who are miserly. But in this new community and under the rule of the new king, generosity will be the pervasive feature. And generous people will devise generous things and by generosity they will stand. As I said, some translations, perhaps yours, has the word noble rather than generous, but generous is accurate. You know, in, in English, the word generous was actually derived from a Latin word which literally meant noble of birth. So in early English, when you described somebody as generous, it was a way of saying that they belonged to nobility. 
Over the centuries, the word morphed, as words are wont to do, and by uh, the time you come into the 20th century, or perhaps even earlier than that, the word generous had come to mean a nobility of spirit rather than simply, literally, family heritage. And it ended up being a word that describes an open-handed generosity, an attitude of liberalness or nobility with regard to the things that you have in the way of resources. And that is an attitude that's capable of being exhibited by anybody. You don't have to be noble of birth. The Hebrew word literally means generous, magnanimous, or willing. And just as the old order that Isaiah sees as he looks around, and just as the order of our culture is, is marked by, by miserliness, we come to the new society, and it is to be marked by this characteristic of generosity. Just as the old order devised and planned their miserliness, in the new order, the generous devises and schemes his generosity. That's what it says in verse seven. There's the same Hebrew word used of the ones who are devising miserliness is used to, of the one who's devising his generosity. So the generosity of the noble person is planned. He devises it. You know, I, th I think people mistakenly imagine or assume that generosity is one of those accidental qualities of birth. And we just say, they're just such a generous person. They were just born that way. Well, they're just such a stingy miser, and they were born that way. I'm sorry, but I don't subscribe to that. Firstly, we aren't reliant on what we are by birth. We've been born again by the actions of a grace-filled, generous God, and he gives us a new empowering in the form of the Holy Spirit intended to change us and shape us into the image of our incredibly grace-filled and generous Father. And I want to say to you, you can become generous if you want to. And the best way to become generous is to plan it and to practice it. We learn best by doing. We perfect attitudes and activities by planning and practice. And we know that right attitudes follow right actions. You say, well, Don, that seems a bit contrived to me. I mean, it's just not authentically me. Listen, if you want a garden, you don't let the soil be authentically itself because we all know what will happen. You plan it, you cultivate it. I've noticed over the years that before people are touched by grace, generosity, if it exists at all, and we know the figures suggest that it largely doesn't, but if it does, it tends to be marked by two things. It's passive and it's spontaneous. It's passive in the sense that people have to be approached and asked if they'll give. You know, I, I mean, I know there are exceptions. Somebody will come up to me afterwards and say, what about so-and-so, you know, they, they, they're obviously not a Christian, but they're generous. I know there are exceptions, but I'm talking about the norm, the 86%, okay, not the exception. These people are passive. They have to be approached in order to give. They aren't out looking for opportunities to be generous. It happens when they're accosted on the street corner or you know, going into the supermarket, there's somebody with a, with a desk there and a, and a cause that they're wanting you to give to or someone comes knocking at the door or perhaps there's a TV ad that shows us some tragic scene of a starving child or a damage caused by the recent cyclone and we 
feel either bad enough or sad enough to put our hands into our pockets or into our wallets and we give what is immediately spontaneously available. Oh, I've got a couple of bucks, here you go. So it's passive, we're not looking to give and it's spontaneous, oh well, whatever I have at the moment. After grace touches us, we are, or at least should be, and tragically, as I said to you last week, the Christian community falls way short of the generosity that we're talking about. You know, 86% of people give less than 2% of their income. Christians outstrip that magnificently by giving 2.5% of their income. We should be ashamed. We absolutely should be ashamed of that figure. We aren't much better than the culture that surrounds us. And largely, our giving is passive. We aren't looking to be generous, and it's spontaneous. Oh, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I suppose I should do that. Get out of wallet, oh, here's 10 bucks. And we think we're magnanimous. Once grace has touched us, we should be changed. And the mark of the people in this new society, as opposed to the foolishness and scoundrelness of that society, one of these days I'll find out what that word actually is, the mark of the new society is incredible, devised generosity. And the mark of people who are in this new community is that their generosity becomes active and intentional. Passive and spontaneous compared with active and intentional. We devise, we plan our generosity. We go looking for opportunities to be generous. Is that true of you? You don't have to answer me, but answer it in your own heart. Is that true of you? As a grace-filled, generous child of the king, do you go looking, as he does, to be generous? We're supposed to scheme and devise to be generous using all the mediums of exchange that are available to us. Part of being active and intentional with the currency and the medium of money means deciding and scheming what proportion of your income you will give away and to what causes you will give them. Now, you knew this was coming, and I'm unapologetic, but I, I wanna just touch very briefly on tithing. I won't touch it much. I'll, I'll maybe come back to it in another message. But once you raise the issue of tithing, there is this, what, what we call a hoary old chestnut. Have you heard that phrase? It basically means an argument repeated so many times that it's become boring. And whenever I've spoken on tithing, almost inevitably, somebody will come up to me and say, but it's Old Testament, Don. Tithing, is it Old Testament or New Testament? Isn't that the law? Aren't we under grace? Now, I don't want to appear flippant in my answer, but you know what? I, I really don't care what you decide with regard to that question. I know good and godly people who think tithing is appropriate and part of the New Testament discipline for a believer, and I know other people who would say, I don't think it is. I, I really don't mind what position you have. Now, I have one, but I would want to ask, and often do, when people come up to me and say, isn't tithing part of the Old Testament? I want to ask a question, and I want to say, in that question, are you trying to give more than the tithe or are you using that question and debate to give less? That's the question for me. The question isn't so much, I believe it's Old Testament, 
or I believe it's New Testament, my question is, when you raise that question, is it a device? Is it a ruse so that you can give less than what the Old Testament required? And I'd wanna say to you, the New Testament was always more, better, greater than the old. If you're asking that question so that you can give more, you'll get no argument from me. If you're using that question to give less, then I have a problem. And the problem isn't so much that you won't be giving more money to the church here. The problem is, I think you have mistaken what grace is supposed to do to us. It doesn't make us more miserly, it makes us more generous. Jesus never lowered the bar in the New Testament. He always raised it. You know, it says don't murder. I tell you, don't be angry. Bar goes up. It says in the Old Testament, don't commit adultery. I tell you, don't look at a woman with lust. Bar goes up. Jesus never lowered the bar. He always raised it and then empowered us by the Spirit to easily leap over the new standard. I'd like to suggest to you that if the tithe is not mandated, if you come to the conclusion that I don't think the tithe is a New Testament requirement, then you might like to see it at least as a leaping off point for even greater generosity. You might like to see the tithe as training wheels to teach you how to be really generous because when you are active and intentional, you plan what proportion of your income you're gonna give away. 10% is a pretty good place. Remember last week I talked about the book, The Paradox of Generosity, written by sociological professors, not Christians, and they suggested that people who were committed to giving, and they named 10% of their income away, statistically were happier, were less sick, were less, uh, were less depressed. And th- these weren't Christians, these weren't a pastor teaching on tithing. These, this was statistical results from, from research that they'd done. I, I think there is something about a 10% that becomes the training wheels for a life of active, intentional generosity. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, the tithe, or talk as if the tithe is the be all and end all of giving. Could I suggest to you that the tithe is the floorboards of giving and not the ceiling of giving? I'll never forget when Karen and I were applying to um, get a loan for our very first house many, many years ago, and I had to outline to our lawyer who was applying for this, um, who was helping us, I had to outline our giving. He was a Jewish man, he was actually the mayor of our town at the same time, and I was sitting with him, and uh, he's going through, and, then, and, he, and he looks at our figures as I'd outlined them, and he looked up at me, and then he looked back down at the figure and said, are you... Are you you give, you give 10% to the church. I said, well, yeah, when it, yeah, I do. And he looked up and said, you're planning to get to heaven faster than most of us. <laughs> and I looked back and said, that, plans, that, that depends on whether you plan on going or not. <laughs> and uh, that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> but, but when you talk about giving 10%, you know, to, to perhaps your un, unsaved family, most often they're horrified. What the heck? What kind of nonsense is that church demanding 10% of your income? And it's perceived in an incredibly negative way. That's the old order. That's incredibly miserly. I'm I'm sorry to suggest that maybe your beloved family might be somewhat miserly, but biblically speaking, 
they might well qualify. Because in the new community, the generous people devise generous plans and by generosity they stand. They are actively, intentionally looking for people and causes and settings to be generous. And 10% friends is where you start, not where you stop. If that sounds outrageous, then can I suggest to you that perhaps your thinking has been profoundly shaped by this culture. We have been touched by a grace-filled, generous God who has given us everything to us. And he says, I wanna raise kids just like that. Many Christians seem to um, have this unspoken question that runs, how much do I have to give to God to keep the relationship intact? I mean, what's the minimum standard that's required to keep him off my case? Well, well is, it, is, it, is it 10%? Can I get away with 5%? And, and I hear that question and I hear this pervasive miserliness of the culture that undergirds it. You imagine for a moment a wedding service, perhaps mine, and I'm standing before Karen about to make my lifelong promises to her and I pause and I whisper to her, what's the minimum required necessary to, to, to keep this relationship intact? Well, you don't have to require prophetic gifting to know how the next scene is gonna unfold. And I suspect Karen wouldn't be alone in that. What kind of person would, would hear that question and have their heart warmed and thrilled by it? And yet, it's something that undergirds so often the questions that we ask when it comes to giving. Well, how much do I have to give? Friends, we are nobility. We've been born again through the new birth. We have a grace-filled, generous king who is active and intentional in his generosity toward his world and toward his people. And we are to be so shaped that we resemble him and so that we become, by virtue of our generosity, executives that provide to other people shelter from the wind, refuge from the storm, streams in the desert, and shade from the heat. Let me just finish, and the musicians might like to come. It says in that verse eight, a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. I was thinking about that, and I suspect that word, he shall stand, is the answer to the question posed by the psalmist in Psalm 24, verse three, where it says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? And here in Isaiah, it says, by generosity, by a magnanimous spirit, by a spirit that's out looking actively and intentionally to do good with every medium of exchange that we have available to us, those are the people that stand in the presence of God. You're saying, Don, are you telling us salvation by works, relationship by virtue of works? No, I'm not. I'm simply saying, when we are touched by grace, if that is not manifest in the way that we live and behave, then you have to question how deeply grace has touched us. We are called to be a people that are incredibly generous, actively generous, intentionally generous. And can I suggest to you that 10% might be a good place to start? You say, well, Don, you don't understand. 
My, my wages are very small and we struggle and, uh, and, 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 and when I get more, then I'll be in a position to give more. And I said last week, that's not how it works. Statistically, as income goes up, giving goes down. Statistically, that's true. People who earn less than $20,000 per annum give 2.6% of their income by, on average. People who earn $150,000 plus give 1.6% of their income per annum on average. I'm sorry, but the idea that I will give more when I get more is faulty. Jesus said, if you're faithful with the little that you have, then I know you'll be faithful with the much. If you are unfaithful in the little, then you will be unfaithful in the much. That's just the way life goes. And statistically, that, is, um, that, that stands up. I, I'm not trying to bring people into penury, you know. You give to the church and I don't care if it breaks you. But you have to grapple with your own heart. And if you've been touched by grace, learn to be generous with the mediums of exchange that you do have available to you. It might be your time. It might be your hospitality and your home. It might be emotional, um, relational medium. I, I, I don't, it might be the medium of words. It will include the medium of money. But learn generosity. Practice it. Devise it. Planet. Don't let it simply be passive and spontaneous. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.